Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, we've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. All of the food that we grow goes into a couple different programs. One is our Fresh Moves mobile market. So we've taken a bus that we've retrofitted into a farmer's market. And we've partnered with 14 different organizations around the city where we go and we do an hour to two hour stops five days a week. So last year we gave away about $300,000 worth of food and we had about 37,000 folks board the bus. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, welcome to the Good Dirt Podcast, everyone. So we hope that you're having a beautiful fall. And we hope that wherever you are, you are feeling in connection with nature and with the seasons. And if you're not, then all the more reason to be here. Right, mom? Yes. And actually today is what we call Slow Friday. Oh my goodness. Yes. Slow Friday. Slow Friday. Especially if you're finding us for the first time, welcome. If you've been around, then you know Slow Friday. Just be careful out there, folks. Yeah. And we have a, an episode where we talk about Slow Friday. And by this time, it should have reposted 
sometime this week to refresh all of you on the ideas that we talk about in Slow Friday and how to manage your way through this initiation of a season of consumer craziness and something that has a huge demand on our energy and our resources and our patience and all those things. So tune in as we lean into slow living through the seasons as a community and as individuals. So as we sort of, if I may, roll off of one holiday and into the next big holiday and through this season, I think it's really important to remember about all of the people who might not have access to all of the extra spending dollars that feels required to make it through the season or access to the good food that we've all been able to enjoy and look forward to enjoying even more as the rest of the year progresses. And there is so many people doing amazing work in this space and to help uplift those in geographical areas that have less access to good food in socioeconomic systems that have been built to disadvantage certain sectors of people and communities. And so I am just so honored to present this conversation and to talk about the power of community and grassroots organizing. And I was just so excited to be introduced to the food bus, which is a concept you'll hear about in this interview. And just to talk to people who are truly doing the work. And I've been really fortunate to be a part of some communities and camps I grew up working at and church groups and secular groups. And mom, you and dad did such a good job around the holidays. We would always have some sort of aspect where we were going downtown to help out a soup kitchen or something like that, where it was like just this awareness of the disparity of all of our experiences around this time. So yeah, we have a really good conversation in store for you today. But before we get to it, I want to give you guys a surprise gift and let you in on a tip that we are doing an amazing giveaway on social media, on Instagram. This is purchase not required, but we are making space in our marketplace. If you haven't heard, we are moving away from our roots as a sustainable apparel company and we're transitioning into lots more other things to be continued. (laughs) And so we have this inventory and these beautiful sustainable clothes that are just made with the utmost care and the most natural fabric that you can find and made ethically and sustainably and responsibly. So after our amazing sale these past two weeks, we will be giving a few garments away. So check out our post on Instagram for more details. I will tell you though, you don't want to miss out on this one because just by entering, you will get one free week in the Almanac. Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. And a $10 gift card to use in the Lady Farm Marketplace by the end of the year. So there you go. That's it, folks. Happy birthday. We're so we're just so excited in the spirit of giving. <laughs> yeah. The spirit of giving on Slow Friday. Yeah. <laughs> and and that kind of ties in with we really wanted to do something like this because we understand that these clothes, even at their discounted prices, are not accessible to everyone. And that is a big thing in sustainable fashion. It, it costs a lot of money to make things well because you have to 
pay people well. So that's just a whole thing. And it shouldn't be something that is only accessible to a certain number of people. It also shouldn't be a thing that exploits people. So it's this complex, nuanced discussion. But what we can do in our power now is take the inventory that we do have and give some away. So enter the giveaway on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. And then watch your inbox for your gift from us that you get just for entering. And thank you. We so appreciate it. And we're just so happy that you're here. And yeah, so circling back to giving and access, we're really thrilled to introduce our guest for today. Yes, her name is Laurel Sims, and she's the co-founder and CEO of Urban Growers Collective, which is a nonprofit organization that was co-founded by Laurel and Erica Allen in the fall of 2017. Their approach is to demonstrate the development of community-based food systems and to support communities in developing systems of their own where food is grown, prepared, and distributed within the community itself. They operate eight urban farms on 11 acres of land, predominantly located on Chicago's south side. Each farm utilizes organic growing methods, intensive growing practices, and year-round production strategies to best maximize growing space. Y'all, it is so cool what they have going on there. And I knew it was cool when we found the organization and just sort of exploring the website and their social media. But talking to Laurel, I was just pretty much jaw on the ground the whole conversation because it's just amazing what they've been able to do. So Laurel herself worked at Growing Power Chicago for 11 years prior to Urban Growers Collective. Formerly, Laurel was the director for Revision House Urban Farm, a farm training program for homeless young mothers in Dorchester, Mass. Laurel is active in the Chicago Food Policy Action Council and formerly served on the board of directors for Slow Food Chicago and Green City Market. And if that's not enough, in her spare time, Laurel is a volunteer magician for Open Heart Magic, which provides bedside magic for hospitalized children. So Laurel is someone who is truly walking the walk, and it was such a privilege to talk to her. Enjoy this conversation today with Laurel Sims of Urban Growers Collective. And we hope you have a wonderful slow Friday and Saturday and Sunday. Just be careful out there this weekend, you guys. Amen. See you next week. My name is Laurel Sims, and I am an urban farmer in Chicago, and I am the co-founder and co-CEO of an organization called Urban Growers Collective, and I have been farming for the last almost 21 years, and I really started by accident. I had moved to Boston from Kansas, where I grew up, and I found Boston to be a little overwhelming. It was the first time I really lived in a really dense city and was really just looking for something to do outside. And so a friend of mine who was farming in Long Island, and he was one of those like poet turned farmers, and he was like, oh, I just really think that you should go and just volunteer at this organization called The Food Project. They have a great volunteer opportunities, and 
you know, I just think it would be so great for you to be outside. It's so good to get your hands in the dirt. And I was like, okay, but I just want to be outside. <laughs> and so I showed up one day and just loved it and just saw what a huge impact this organization was having with the teens that was engaging. And this beautiful farm in the middle of Dorchester was providing so much incredible food. And I was hooked. So I started going every Saturday and this was when my son was really little, so I was staying at home with him, and I would go just on the days that my partner wasn't working, and then I started showing up every time I could. So I was going Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays, and finally, they were just kind of like, uh, we need to get you your own farm. You're showing up all the time, and we're, we're not paying you. <laughs> so that's how I really started. So after that, I started working at a, another farm right down the street from them called Revision Urban Farm. And it really just kind of grew from there. And was that all in Boston or did you go to Chicago? Yeah, so that was actually all in Boston. Okay. And yeah, so at Revision, I worked there for a few years and that's actually where I met my partner at Urban Growers Collective. So Erica and her father, Will Allen, were actually in Boston for a tour and for a conference. And they came to our farm and visited. And it was just one of those moments where, you know, this huge group of people were standing on the farm and I could just really see from the look on their faces that they were getting what I was saying. And sometimes like you give tours and people just kind of give you these blank stares mm -hmm. where they're just like, I don't really understand what you're talking about. And like Will and Erica definitely just got what I was saying. And there was like an immediate connection. And Will invited me to the Growing Power Farm in Milwaukee. So I went there for a couple different trainings and I went for the same conference, but a year later, because it was being hosted in Milwaukee that year. And yeah, from there, it just kind of grew into a beautiful friendship. And so when we were thinking about moving to Chicago, I emailed Erica and said, we're thinking about moving. Do you have any recommendations for jobs in the area? And she said, you're hired. And so Amazing. it was the easiest job interview I've ever been part of. <laughs> and yeah, we've worked together for 17 years now. So, wow. yeah, and it's been a really pretty amazing collaboration. So what she hired you into was the Urban Growers Collective that you're now working in. So it was actually into Growing Power Chicago. Okay. And she'd founded that in 2002, and I moved okay. here in 2005. And so she just started the organization. It had two projects at the time, and I was actually hired to be our youth program coordinator. So... It had just been a summer program up until then. She had had two years of summer programming. And at that point, they were really thinking about expanding into year-round programming. So I was hired to help write the curriculum for that and really just do the expansion and teach that year-round programming. And from there, I became a production manager. And when Grave Power closed five years ago, she and I decided to spin off the organization and turn it into Urban Growers Collective. And with that, we really wanted to take all the like wonderful things that Growing Power created, which was the eat urban farms that we were growing on and the incredible youth programming that we've been doing, but also to, I think, really integrate a little bit more, especially in terms of healing as part of our work. So Growing Power's focus was really about getting community food production as amped up as possible. Well, it's very much about growing food and his goal was just to grow as much food as possible. And that's definitely a huge piece of our mission. But I think the other big piece of our mission is really the education piece and making sure that 
the folks who come to our farms feel really safe and feel like they have spaces for healing. And so for us, we really wanted to be able to integrate just beauty and also just having more herbs and different types of outlets for folks so that it wasn't just about the food, which is again, crucial because we want folks to feel nourished, but we also want folks to feel nourished in a lot of different ways. And we know that food is just one of those ways that folks really feel that nourishment when they come and create community. And so for us, we wanted it to be a little more encompassing. I want to talk about this healing aspect that you're mentioning, but I'd like to go back a little bit first and ask you about that scene you described when you were talking to the group of people that your future partners were a part of, correct? Yes. And and you said you could just tell that your future partners were really getting what you were saying. So I want to know what were you saying <laughs> there? What, what what were your tours of this garden in Boston? And what was that called? I'm sorry. So it's called Revision House Urban Farm, and it was a shelter. So we actually had three small urban farms there, and it was a shelter for homeless moms. So we had about 17 families living in a short-term shelter, but short-term being about two years Mm -hmm. for folks, for mothers and their families looking for long-term housing. And so moms were placed there, and then we did job training at the farm. And so a big piece of that was both the job training aspect, but also teaching moms how to cook and really nourish their children. And so teaching kind of all aspects of that, of how to both grow the food and also how to prepare the food for the families. And I think back in the day, so this was two thousand and to 2003 at that time, that was really when the urban farming movement was really just starting. Mm -hmm. So community garden movement, the urban farming movement was pretty new at that point. Folks were still really unsure of what it was about. So having these urban farms in the middle of the city was a really new concept. And so when I was talking and saying, hey, like this is a really great opportunity to create jobs, to provide food for families living in the neighborhood, to really create this link between young moms and seniors, because that was a big piece of what we were seeing. The neighborhood that we were in had a tremendous amount of elders, and a big piece of what we were seeing in the neighborhood was elders responding to the young moms who were working at the farm. So they were coming over, talking to them about what they would grow, like growing up in Jamaica. So we grew a lot of callaloo. And they would talk about how when they were kids, they would go out and harvest callaloo. So they were creating these really beautiful community connections with the young moms who were also living in the shelter. And so it was just this really amazing community connection between elders living in the neighborhood and new folks who were coming into the community. And I just felt like a lot of the folks who were on the tour were just kind of like, what? <laughs> what is this? And like, it was just something that they were wrapping their heads around yet. And Mm -hmm. I think now there's this demonstrated history. So we have like 20 years of really demonstrated urban farming history where we can see the impact. But at the time, it was so new. Folks Mm. just didn't really believe that it was going to happen. And Will and Erica, I think, had just at that point, Growing Power had been around for about five years. Erica was just starting out in Chicago at that time. They had seen some demonstrated history and they knew and had seen the impact, at least in Milwaukee. And so they were just like nodding their head because they'd seen it and they knew that it worked. And so kind of us starting to convince the world that this was the right path to be on. Yeah, I mean, that's what it takes. I think anyone who works in this space of just 
optimism, forward thinking, but also grounded in a realistic feet on the ground, hands in the dirt, literally like this is what we have to do to get it done. And it sounds crazy to people and it sounds pie in the sky, but that's kind of like, I don't know how you don't start there, you know, and I don't know how you do it without finding those people that you did and then ultimately do amazing things. What was the Michigan tie-in? Oh, Milwaukee. So Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So when Will started the organization, he founded it in Milwaukee. So Erica actually started the Chicago office about five years later. So she started like a spinoff and a smaller projects office in Chicago. And so I came to work in Chicago with her. Cool. Okay. So now we're all in Chicago, Urban Growers Collective, and its current form has been around for about five years, as you said? Yeah. In November, we'll celebrate our fifth anniversary. Wow, that's so exciting. I know. It's gone by really fast. Yeah, that's about as long as, I guess, we've been doing Lady Farmer a little bit, just a little bit longer than that, but about the same timeline. And it's really crazy. We talked to a lot of people on this podcast where things started 2016, 2017. I think there was just like yeah. a lot, a big shift going yeah. on then. No, it was a huge shift. And I yeah. think, you know, just even to kind of go back, that first conversation is that, you know, I think back in 2003, so many people thought that like urban gardening was cute. Right. Yeah. You know, and I think that that was really the big piece of it. It's just like community gardens and urban farming is cute. Mm-hmm. And like now I think that people really realize that it can be really impactful. That mm-hmm. it's not just like this cute little hobby that we do. It actually can really shift community. Yeah. That's a piece we had to convince folks about. Yeah. Describe these urban farms. You're working now with eight urban farms and urban growers collective. So what kind of space are we talking about and how are they separated off from the neighborhood? I mean, are they in a park or describe that a little bit? All of them are a little bit different, which is what I think what makes them really fun. So our oldest is actually in Grant Park. So it's in the heart of the city. There's no walls around it. Anybody can just walk into it. So it gets about 100,000 visitors every year, which is pretty amazing. And it's done as like a landscaped farm. So it's really beautiful. It demonstrates how to grow food in a really gorgeous way. Mm. And it has about 100 to 150 varieties of vegetables on any given year. Oh, wow. Vegetables, herbs, and edible flowers. And that garden is actually about a quarter of an acre. So it's pretty small, but it actually employs for 45 teens over the summer. And so those teens learn everything from seeding to harvesting to giving tours. So we do free tours of the site. So they really learn how to beef up their public speaking skills and how to not be nervous in front of huge crowds of people, which is really cool, but also how to do really engaging activities. So this year they came up with some really fun different ways to engage folks. So beyond giving the tour, they also taught the different folks who are going on the tour how to do cute little herb bundles, like how to dry herb bundles. And then they also taught how to do like herbal stamping, which was really neat. So they just created really fun and innovative ways to get folks engaged into growing food. So that's our smallest farm to our largest farm, which is also a park district property, but it's seven acres. And so on that property, we're able to employ 30 teens. And again, teens do everything from seeding to harvesting to selling at a farmer's market to giving tours to the public on Saturdays. But at that farm, we also are able to give bigger pieces of land to folks who want to to engage in their own businesses. So we have an incubator farmer program there. We're really trying to support BIPOC growers so that they're able to have opportunities to 
have long-term engagement for land. So we've supported multiple businesses there. And then we also have two apprenticeship programs there. So this year we started a grower's apprenticeship there and an herbalism apprenticeship there, which has been really incredibly popular. Those two programs we started this year because we definitely found that we had a lot of people interested in wanting to be incubator farmers, but weren't ready for that step yet. So they really needed that kind of step before where they wanted to learn more about growing, but really weren't ready for, I'm ready to launch into a business. And so we decided to do this like step back so that people got that engagement and got to learn more about growing food. And then once they're ready to become incubator participants, they can then step into that program. And so we have about 15 people in the incubator farmer program and then about 18 people in the herbalism program, which has been really exciting. What an amazing, comprehensive community organization. My goodness. It's really fun. You're feeding people, <laughs> you're training people, you're connecting people, you're preparing people for careers. It's very, very impressive. And I want to hear more about what you were saying about the healing aspects and how, just talk about that a little bit. So I think for us, we just definitely want to create spaces. So a kind of community healing space is really important. So both of those spaces that I just described are important in a couple different ways. And so like when I first started the Grant Park space, even though it's downtown and it's completely accessible to anyone in the city, we had 15 teens in our program and almost all of those teens felt like it was space that was not theirs. Mm. And so even though it's park district land, even though it is public space, we had 15 black teenagers who would come into that space and didn't feel like they were accepted and didn't feel like it was theirs. That's interesting. Like, how was this expressed? Yeah. Was there a place where they felt safe enough to say that? That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it was just because I was their instructor at that point. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of just talking, you know, like, is this the first time you've ever been here? And so just engaging in those conversations and... Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of them had said, one is just like crossing boundaries in Chicago. And so not feeling safe to cross different boundaries because of gang violence mm -hmm. and territory violence. And then just also feeling like police violence. So, you know, walking downtown and having police harassment when as black kids just walking downtown, all they have to do is walk and they'll be confronted. And so... I think a big piece of that was just not feeling welcome. And so mm -hmm. being able to be in this really beautiful space and knowing that public space was for them allowed them some ownership over that area. And I think that really starts changing that dynamic with how Black teens access public space in Chicago. And so I think that that is one way that we increase accessibility through our programs and I think, whereas on like the South Side in the South Chicago Garden, it's taking a space that was a brownfield space that had been totally underutilized for decades at that point and turning it into this really beautiful space that has butterflies and just gorgeous flowers and an abundance of food and having teens come in and just visibly, you can just see that stress melt when they walk in the mm. gates. 
And so I think that they're two very different spaces, but they definitely offer different opportunities for our teens to be able to relax into that space and to be able to operate in our city in different ways that they didn't get to prior to these gardens being there. And I think that those are just really amazing things that we get to offer through our programming. Yeah, it's incredible. And just backing up a little bit, the gardens themselves and the urban farms themselves, what is the business model of that? Are there CSAs? Are they markets? Like, how do those run? All of the food that we grow goes into a couple different programs. One is our Fresh Moves mobile market. So we've taken a bus that we've retrofitted into a farmer's market. And we've partnered with 14 different organizations around the city where we go and we do an hour to two hour stops five days a week. So Monday through Friday, the bus operates and then we do consistent stops. So every Wednesday morning, we're at the Howard Brown Health Center. And so folks come on the bus and they can shop for produce. We have all of the produce from all of the different farms that we operate, but then we also supplement with farm or with produce from other farms. So a couple of the different incubator farmers that we've had both currently, but also folks who've graduated from our program also supply the bus. And then we also have a wholesaler that we buy from so that we can get fruit like mangoes and avocados because we know that those things are popular. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily things that are local, but we do know that folks really love them and need to eat. Mm -hmm. And we want them to eat local produce or we want them to eat produce. So even yeah. if it's not local, we want them to eat it and we want them to be healthy. And so we know that those are healthy foods and whatever healthy foods are going to eat, we are pro. <laughs> if we know that that's what folks are going to be more likely to eat, those are the things we're going to stock the bus with. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the ways that we get fresh produce out into communities. We also have two farm stands. One is at our South Chicago farm. We also do some pop-up markets at our Roosevelt Square Farm with our youth corps. And then we also do a CSA program. So we have our summer CSA and a fall CSA. Gosh, you guys have so much going on. It's really housing. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, it's definitely a lot. And then with COVID, one of the things that we we're so fortunate to be able to do is a lot of our funders work together to be able to offer us $10 vouchers. So with our Fresh Moods program for the last two years, we've been able to offer $10 free vouchers. So that's been an incredible opportunity to be able to serve the customers on the Fresh Moods the Fresh Foods mobile market. So everybody who comes on the bus gets $10 free immediately off of their wow. grocery bill. And then we've also, through LinkUp Illinois, been able to offer up uh, $50 matching for folks who are on food assistance. So it really helps extend food dollars for folks who most need it. So like last month, we gave away $33,000 worth of produce on the bus. And the month before Amazing. that, $30,000. So it's made a huge impact for the communities that we've been working with. We predominantly serve folks on the south side. We have a couple west side stops. Mm -hmm. We'd love to do a second bus at some point in the future. But right now, we predominantly are on the south side. My finding was that sometimes it's overwhelming. I don't know what to do with the vegetables. So do you guys offer some sort of support or trainings so that people feel empowered and they know what to do with the vegetables? Yeah. So I think CSA models are are great and difficult. Mm -hmm. So great for the farmer, sometimes difficult for the customer, as you mentioned. So yes, we do offer some assistance. So we do a newsletter, we do offer some recipes and... 
Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. We also actually just partnered with this amazing doctor. Her name is Gita Maker-Clark, and she's a, an incredible doctor, but she's also just really linked with kind of our mission. And she's done some workshops with us about more alternative healing workshops where it's not just like traditional medicine. She very much looks at just kind of alternative medicines. She knows a ton about herbs. So she and some of her medical interns actually just went through and did some amazing recipes for us that we'll be able to offer on the bus and for future CSAs where they looked at different types of chronic diseases. So like if you have diabetes or for folks who have HIV or for folks who have heart disease, and they tailored recipes specifically for those chronic diseases. So we'll actually be able to offer those for the bus too. So it's something that we've been calling prescription for health with our partners at Howard Brown Health Center. So their dietitians have actually been prescribing different kinds of fruits and vegetables for their clients who then board the bus and then buy those vegetables. And so for the last couple of years, Howard Brown's been sponsoring that and they give $25 free for their folks who are part of their dietary program. And so we got some funding through the American Heart Association to be able to sponsor these recipes. And so with Gita's help, I've been able to create these new recipes and we're really excited to be able to launch them this fall. And we're going to be able to do a couple of health fairs at like five or six of our different brush move stops and to be able to really kind of launch those recipes and do some really fun programming to be able to just really kick off that new program. We're really excited. That's amazing. That is amazing. Laurel, y'all are doing the work. Wow. I want to zoom out a little bit. I want to hear you, Laurel, talk about food justice and food access. And I know this is your whole work, but what have you observed in your work about the changes that this has made in the communities? And you've talked a little bit about the healing and the teens feeling of more belonging and ownership and community there. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, especially with COVID, the world really saw what an impact scarcity will have on our future, right? And so it was the first time I think that we all could acknowledge how broken our food system is. And I mean, we just saw a blip of that, right? We just saw how tremendously fragile it is. If there's a panic, everything is gone in two days. You know, in my lifetime, I've seen that twice. I saw that like with 9-11 when things flew off the shelf very quickly. And then we saw it with COVID. And I think in my grandparents' time, they saw it much more often and had a lot of trauma from that too. I mean, with the depression and, you know, I very much saw that impact with my grandparents saving even like tinfoil and saving mm-hmm all of these smaller things to make sure that they had enough. And if anything, if there was ever an accident, that they would have these smaller things to make sure that they would have preserves or they would have these fragile resources that we don't necessarily always have. Right. You know, my generation does not have that mindset. And I definitely know my son's generation does not have that. And so COVID was really the first time that we saw that. And that is... No, if you live on the south side of Chicago, that's like every day. Yeah. Because there is no access. And so it is so much a matter of perspective. And so when we talk about food justice and food equity, we're so much talking about privilege Mm -hmm. and just that privilege of mindset, right? And so when we think about that, if you don't have access to a grocery store, you didn't see all those things flying off the shelf because you don't have a grocery store to be able to see that. You're constantly having to make those decisions of like, where is my money and my resources going? Am I going to be able to pay for rent? Where am I going to be able to get this food? What type of food am I going to be able to get this month? And what type of food am I going to be able to get? Because I have limited amounts of dollars to be able to spend on that. So I'm going to spend it on things that are going to last me versus things that are fresh produce because that's going to go bad sooner. And so when those decision-making trees are part of your everyday decision-making, you have to make a lot of really tough decisions. And so for folks who have lots of privilege, that is not part of that decision-making tree. Like I can go out and buy bananas and if I don't use them, I can throw them out, right? Mm -hmm. If you have an abundance of resources, like I'm not going to have to like make that banana bread. I can just waste it. Mm -hmm. For so many Americans, that is just how they live. Mm -hmm. And it is a very unfortunate way of living. And that's a big piece of like why in Chicago we have like 55 million pounds of food wasted, I think, a month. I mean, it's a crazy amount. That statistic may be wrong. That's just Chicago. But it's pretty high. Yeah. It's huge. I mean, it's just a shocking amount of food wasted every month. So it's not just about not having enough food. It's also just the pure amount of food we waste. And the distribution. Distribution, yeah. You know, so like for folks in Inglewood versus Edgewater, there's a New York Times article about just this like eight mile difference. Folks in Inglewood live about 60 years versus folks in Edgewater who live about 90 years. And that's eight miles apart in the same city. And it's one of the largest gaps in the world. Mm. And that's in the city we live in. And that has a huge amount to do with food access. It has to do with stress. It has to do with the fact that there's not affordable housing. You know, and all of those things are structural. And so we have to have better policies to be able to make sure that folks have access to what they need and that they have the jobs that they need, that they have the security that they need so that they're able to make decisions about their livelihood that allow them to have the abundance to be able to live 
the lives that like their neighbors eight miles away have the same access to. That's such a helpful illustration that you have two communities eight miles apart in the same city with these incredibly differing outcomes because of the access to not only food, but healthcare, jobs, all of that, literally physically not that far apart. Yeah. No. So as an example, in Inglewood, where there's no grocery store, what would the people eat? They can't get to a grocery store. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of that, like the options are are corner stores, it's fast food. Mm -hmm. There are some of the grocery stores have just closed. And so we have our Fresh Waves Mobile Market has two stops there. There's definitely a couple farmers markets. But I mean, I think that that's some of the policy work that has to be done is to make sure that one, residents are engaged because one side of Inglewood is not exactly the same as another side of Inglewood. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely making sure that you're working with community groups and community and neighbors to make sure that you are reaching out to them to make sure that you are addressing their needs and not just doing just kind of these one size fits all solutions. Cause we've already seen that with like Whole Foods. So the city was like, this is a great idea. Let's just put a Whole Foods in and not necessarily engaging folks in the neighborhood to see what they want. Yeah. And so sometimes the policy decision is not what is needed. And so I definitely think that the city could do a better job of making sure that they're engaging specific neighborhoods for what solutions they are desiring and need. But there are some solutions, there's just not enough of them. And we definitely need more resources to be able to allow community groups and folks to be able to do the work so that folks do get the food and access to you know, other resources like healthcare, like housing, to make sure people are supported. So you might have just said this in a different way, but why isn't it as simple as if there's no grocery stores, why not just put in a grocery store? Like, why can't we just put a grocery store there? I think it's because grocery stores are expensive. There's just so many policy implications behind it. This law may have changed, but I know in the past that if a grocery store has been somewhere, then they own the rights of that grocery store for like 10 years out. And that may have actually changed, but I know in the past that that is true so that a new grocery store can't come into that same location. Oh, And so I know in the past that was an issue. I'm not sure if that changed or not, but that was definitely something that in the past made it really difficult for new grocery stores to come into that. So a grocery store goes in and they say, we're yeah. not doing well, we're going to leave, but also no other grocery store. No, yeah, nobody else can move in. Wow. So that's an issue. I think that there is that like, there's racism. And so it's like, oh, I don't want to go into a black neighborhood. And so very white corporations will try to get the city to give them more money to do that. Hmm. I think that that like racism definitely plays a role in mm-hmm. how corporations negotiate. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an issue. There's a lot of reasons for why that it doesn't necessarily always work. And I would also say that the education is a part of it because if you know you've lived in this neighborhood for 25 years and the corner store and the fast food and stuff has been your diet and the way you get from day to day, and then this, a grocery store comes in your habits and customs aren't necessarily going to switch immediately. So I guess what I'm saying is it might take a while for these stores to actually get the community to acclimate to its presence. You think that's a thing? I think it's maybe part of a thing. But I mean, I also think that when we when we started offering like $10 of free food, that was not an issue. You know, like right. folks were coming and like folks wanted fresh produce. Yeah. That's not, that's definitely not an issue. I think that it has to do more with 
what kind of produce are you offering? I think it has to do with like, what are you offering? So making sure that it's like culturally appropriate for the neighborhood that you are in. I think it also has to do with pricing. So making sure that it's really competitive because like fast food is expensive. So even though it's pre-made, it's really, really expensive. And if you have more than yourself to feed, it's taking up a lot of your resources and you can buy a lot more meals with $20 than you can just buying fast food for $20. And so I think that that has to do more with it. So I definitely think it's like having a grocery store is probably preferable for most people if they can get access to it. I was going to ask you along those lines, can you sort of estimate how many people you have engaging or like what, is it a large segment of the community or is it just a small group of people that come back all the time? How widespread is this within those communities that you show up with these vouchers and this access to really great food? Yeah. So last year we gave away about $300,000 worth of food and we had about 37,000 folks board the bus. Wow. Amazing. It was a lot of folks. And we have a lot of repeat folks who come. They just, you know, they come every week. And yeah, they're they're pretty hardcore about coming to get their vegetables. I guess the word spreads, huh? Yeah. And I mean, it's definitely, I think at all of our sites, we could be there a little bit longer. We're there for about an hour to two hours at every site. And we could be there probably a little bit longer at every site. But we're also trying to kind of fit it into an eight-hour day. Mm-hmm. And this impact as many people as we can. We're trying to kind of balance staff and making as big an impact as we can in as many communities as we can. So this is how we figured out how to do it. And is this model in this form, is this happening in other cities as well? It is. So it's kind of taken off. Yeah, there's definitely classes all over now. So there's actually a conference every year. And yeah, there's classes in almost every major town, including like in Toronto, Canada. And is yeah. there one in D.C.? I don't know about it. I don't know if there's one in D.C. or not. I'm going to get one. Tell me if I'm imagining this, but it sounds like sort of a reincarnation of something that used to happen in the big cities the earlier part of the century where a wagon would come through and <laughs> go in and just park in a place and people knew yep. when the wagon was coming and get the produce on yep. the wagon. The Wells Fargo yeah. again? There was a name for it. Do you know the name of it, Laura? What would they call I it? I don't know. Yeah, we have a couple here too. And like predominantly like Latino neighborhoods, we have produce kind of like produce trucks. Mm-hmm. So it's very similar. And like, and we've just found that for folks, you know, I set up farmer's markets for 20 years and the bus is so much easier to set up than just popping yeah. up tents and tables. <laughs> it really, oh I mean, it still takes about an hour to set up, but it's definitely much easier. Mm-hmm. And then just drive out, it definitely is a little bit easier than having to do that and just drive to the next stop. You know, we've had several discussions on here from people that do various farmers markets or food provision for different populations and learning that there's all kinds of models. There's yeah. all kinds of ways to do it. It's a hard gig. <laughs> it's definitely, it's a lot of work. And but people are being so creative. And our friend April Jones, she does it. She has a little farmer's market that's sort of a, people will contact her when they need something and they can just come at, get her it. House, at her and house. And people just know she's the vegetable lady. And she just like, <laughs> they come oh, that's so it cool. up and Yeah. So and she used to do this setting up thing. And then it just sort of like, too much work. Just text me. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. What's happening in other cities? Is it also called the Fresh Moves Mobile Market? Yeah, there's different, like there's one in, I think it's in Richmond, 
where it's just called the farm bus. So yeah, there's just different different ones in all different places. So there is a farm bus in D.C. Oh, really? Is it just called farm bus? Because it might be the same. Yeah, the farm bus. We're close to Richmond, so it's probably the same people. Because we actually trained him at Growing Power. Yeah, <gasps> based in Richmond, Virginia. Oh my yeah. gosh, what a They're connection. Great. You trained him. Yep. The guy that went open one in Richmond, and now we've got it in D.C. or vice versa. Yeah. Well, I think he comes to D.C. Because it's only two hours away. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, Mark Lilly. So speaking of, like, local cultures and cuisine and stuff, what things are popular? You said the mangoes. And where do you and get avocados. the mangoes? Do you order them in from somewhere? So we actually, we work with a, a wholesaler called Midwest Foods. So women, mm-hmm. uh, it's a woman-owned wholesaler. We try to do culturally appropriate food for kind of our different stops. So like on Tuesday, we, we have a senior home that we go to that's mostly Latino. And so at stop, try to get lots of mangoes, cilantro and onions and tomatoes. So like those are heavy harvest days at the farm for those items except for the mangoes and avocados, which we order from Midwest, because we know that we're going to go through cases and cases of those mm-hmm. for the seniors. So yeah, for that day, we order those special. And then for other days, if it's a predominantly Black neighborhood, it may just be like, it might be more sweet potatoes and collard greens. Each day looks a little bit different for us, depending on what sites we're going to. And that's just something that we definitely, because we know we're definitely trying to capture our audience. And we know yeah. You know, we know what folks like, just given on what, you know, we look at our sales data and then we try to just adjust based on what our heavy sales are. And then I think for us too, and this goes to, goes back to speaking about COVID, but also I think about food access is that so much of what we do just as a society is this kind of like one size fits all mm-hmm. approach. And, that, and we try to do that with neighborhoods. We try to do that with just food in general. And so like for COVID, a huge piece of our response to the fact that so many folks were without food during COVID and were having such a hard time accessing food is, you know, the USDA was doing these food boxes and when it was a very much like one size fits all approach where things that were going in the boxes were just things that were not, well, not very well thought out. What were in the food boxes? So in predominantly black neighborhoods that so many folks are lactose intolerant, you know, it'd be like cheese, milk, tons of dairy, like apples, potatoes, onions. And that would be it. Yeah. So like half the box is not edible and the other half of the box is really not anything that's going to sustain someone. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we really worked with folks on is to try to cater those boxes because we knew that that is something that was not going to get a family of four through the week. And yeah. like if we're going to be spending money and the USDA was giving organizations money to cater, you know, to create these boxes is like, can we get rid of some of this dairy and put in different fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. so that folks would actually be able to have produce that they could prepare for meals? Because, mm-hmm. like, nobody's living on potatoes and onions, and that's it. Yeah. You know, and so many folks were just, like, taking out, like, it was, like, a five-gallon bucket of yogurt. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. It was just mind-boggling. And people just, like, taking it out. They would get the box, you know, and it's, like, people were having to take these boxes back home, and they were walking to pick them up, and they're just taking them out on the street because they couldn't carry it. Mm-hmm. And... You know, and they're like, we don't eat this. 
Like, yeah. I can't eat this. But that is like, you know, this is like this big top-down response mm-hmm. that was not working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, I think, one way where nonprofits can really be helpful is when they are working with communities and they do know what folks are wanting, specifically in neighborhoods that they're working with, mm-hmm. where they can help tailor and advocate to change the way that money is trying to get spent. That's so interesting. I think that happens all too much. I think anyone working in the nonprofit donation sector can relate to that, just like the donations thing. Mm -hmm. No, we don't need all of your trash. And like, just because you don't want it doesn't mean someone else definitely can use it. Yes. We were having a similar conversation with Julia Skinner in Atlanta was saying how that same thing you're saying, like there's money and effort from these organizations, but with asking, yeah, they're not asking what is the need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so a lot of it's, a lot of the effort's just wasted. Yeah. And you might say, well, you know, something's better than nothing, but actually not. But not if someone can't eat it. Yeah, yeah right. It's just getting wasted. Exactly. So yeah, a little more customization. Mm-hmm. So these resources can be fully utilized. Yeah. I'm interested in hearing you talk about what do you think your biggest challenges are for the Urban Growers Collective and your biggest wins. I mean, I think definitely one of the challenges that we have is, and I think just urban growers in general, not just the Urban Growers Collective, is just land access in Chicago. And just, I think that's a universal problem for folks who are trying to do urban growing. A big piece of that in Chicago is that so much of the land is contaminated. And mm-hmm. so for us, it's access to land that's not contaminated, which is almost impossible. And it's also just securing land that it's not incredibly expensive. And as we're seeing just universally across the United States is that it's very, very difficult to have land access that's not incredibly expensive. And that's especially true for, I think, new BIPOC growers. And so part of why we have the incubator farmer program and why we have long-term land access is that we know that it's really hard for new growers to be able to access land. But especially if you are a black grower or a brown grower, it's really difficult to be able to get a loan. And it's very difficult to be able to get a loan that is affordable. And so we want folks to be able to have that land access. And we know that as an organization that we have resources. And so we want to be able to offer bigger chunks of land so that new growers have that access. They have long-term access to it so they can get their business off the ground. So that is one of our huge goals. It's definitely one of our huge challenges. And so it's why we've worked with Chicago Park District. It's why we've worked with Chicago Housing Authority to be able to have kind of long-term leases so that we can continue to grow and to urban farm on public land, but also to be able to offer these um, opportunities for folks who don't have that same access as individuals. And I think that leads into what will hopefully be one of our biggest wins is, and the newest thing on the horizon is our newest project, which is called the Green Era Urban Farm. And so it's the thing that we are now fundraising for, and it will be our new headquarters. So it is going to be a seven-acre farm in the Auburn Gresham neighborhood in Chicago. So we partnered with an organization called Green Era, or Green Era Sustainability, a not-for-profit entity, and then Green Era LLC, which is actually is operating the first anaerobic digester in the city of Chicago. And so it will be able to take 200 tons of waste, food waste, each day, 
and then turn it into compost, which is incredible. And so in partnership, we will be able to create compost and sell that compost so that we are helping solve that contamination issue because we know we're not going to be able to rectify the soil that's underneath, but we can grow on top of it. And Mm -hmm. the only way we can do that is with really good soil. And there's a huge lack of that in Chicago. So having access to really affordable soil is the way to do it. So that's one way that we are solving for that crisis. To be able to do that and to do that affordably is huge. That's going to be amazing. And we're also solving the food waste crisis in Chicago, which is also going to be amazing. I think that that's something that I'm just incredibly excited about and really proud that that's the direction that we're moving into. The other thing that I think is going to be amazing is that it'll be the first time that we'll have a headquarters. So we're fundraising to build an educational campus where we'll actually have a retail store. We'll have our office space there. So right now we just have a projects office and we operate, you know, farms outside of that. But we'll actually have a farm and office space in the same place. And our Fresh Moves bus will operate out of that space. So it'll be the first time that we kind of all operate in one space, which will be really incredible. So we're really excited about just that opportunity to be able to do that and to just have this destination spot for folks to be able to come and really see how green energy can be created, how you can create this really beautiful green space on a brownfield that was a huge eyesore for the community for decades and is now just a really beautiful green oasis that's creating green jobs, green energy, that's creating just an abundance of food and really turning what was waste into the next generation of food and farmers and just green jobs. So it's pretty awesome. The potential of that is just so amazing. You think of all these sort of blighted urban landscapes that could be just turned into something like that, just like you're doing. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know, Like, how do you determine whether or not the soil is contaminated or just not nourished or if it actually has something in it that you shouldn't be growing food in? And then also, who helps you to transform the spot, the lot or the acreage? Obviously, there has to be a lot of infrastructure put in. So who does all that? Yeah. So, I mean, you can do soil testing, but I mean, we definitely just know just having operated in Chicago for as long as we have that so much of the soil in Chicago is contaminated with lead. So we just kind of operate under that principle. But also most brownfield sites we know have been imploded. And so there's so much garbage living underneath that soil. When you say brownfield, what do you mean so specifically? So it kind of depends on the site. So for example, the site, the Green Era site, there was industry there. So we know that it was high contamination with lots of toxins. Mm. So that we know that that had to get remediated. So they actually got a grant to remediate that entire site. And so it's been that soil through EPA standards was taken off and then new clean fill was put in its place. Um, The same was true with South Chicago. So the park district actually got money to be able to remediate that site. So there's a three foot barrier underneath the site because what was there before we were there was houses, like for, for decades before we moved onto the land. It was houses that had been imploded and then soil was put on top of them. And so we knew that that land was contaminated. 
the park district got money to be able to remediate that land. So they came in with, I believe, the EPA or Illinois EPA excavated. So it's a three feet of soil, put a barrier, and then clean fill was added to the top. We knew we could grow on that space safely, but we also knew that that soil, that cleanful soil, was not necessarily nutrient-dense. So we brought in a ton of compost to be able to grow there. So even though it was safe to grow, it wasn't necessarily the best soil to grow in. So we've been adding to that consistently for the last seven years that we've been on that site. Well, this machine you have to convert food waste into compost just sounds like absolutely revolutionary. It's amazing. It's very, yeah. very incredible. We'll have to link that. Our other cities have it. Yeah. So it's actually, it's a technology that's been used all over Europe. There's some in California and Texas. The website's actually greenerachicago.com. It's been used in lots of different places, but this is going to be the first one in Chicago. It's been used a lot in farms and especially in like smaller green farms. But this is, I think, the first in, it's definitely the first in Chicago, and it may be the first in a city that's doing, like, predominantly food waste in the U.S. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty exciting, and it can take even food waste that has plastic wrapping, and it, it takes it apart. Wow. It's pretty awesome. It's called Green Era. Green Era Chicago. Yep. And so for anyone that, we've talked about food waste on here a lot, but for anyone that is n new to the hugeness of this mm -hmm. problem, there's a documentary called Wasted. Have you mm -hmm. seen that? I have, yep. That lays this out. It's, it's pretty staggering, and, and I've said this so many times on here, but this could always be someone's first listen. People think that the food you throw in your garbage is going to decompose because, of course, it breaks down, right? But it does not break down in the landfills. And it creates methane gas. More greenhouse gases. Yeah. So it's a big problem. It's horrifying. Yeah. But it is, I think, I mean, I do think that so many people just think that it does break down, mm -hmm. right? And so that is just that, that myth that we're just like, oh, yeah, it's fine. But it's not fine. Yeah. And we're running out of room very quickly. And so we have to think of new solutions. So just like the food system is broken, the way we create waste in the food system is horribly broken. Mm -hmm. And we have very little time mm. before we have to create some new solutions. Yeah. Well, speaking of very little time, yeah. what does slow living mean to you, Laurel? <laughs> Oh, slow living. I wish I had a little more time to have slow living right now. <laughs> it's, you know, this is September, and I always feel like August and September are so busy mm. in our farmer life. It's true. The farm is so, so busy. Well, the secret is sometimes slow living doesn't have anything to do with time. Yes, it's <laughs> <That is> true. <laughs> it's very true. You know, I think for me, it is slow moments, right? So I always kind of think about when I think about how I ended up working at a farm and loving loving farming when I was a kid. So my parents owned a restaurant when I was little and my mom grew most of the food for the restaurant and my dad was the Ooh. cook and I hated being in the garden. And it was mostly because I think I felt a little unwelcome because my mom loved the garden. But that was really, the reason for that was because it was her sacred space and that she did not want me there. And so I was not welcome in the garden. It was very clear. And it was definitely like, it was her sacred time. And, you know, as a four-year-old, 
I just felt like my mom did not want me around. But I think as an adult and as someone who just loves to be in the garden alone and the farm alone, I feel that now. And and I probably give off those vibes to many of our staff when, <laughs> when I am there. That I like just everyone's want to go. mixed up around me. Yeah. <laughs> I just, you know, I want to go and I just want to eat by myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I really, I love that. And so I think that that's, for me, a big piece of what slow living looks like is it's having those, even though like that is work, right? Like I am working and I am quote unquote productive. That is part of my sacred space and sacred time. And so having those moments where I can have that space and time to think and to work out whatever problems I happen to have, whether it's like work related for like my actual job or like my life work that I have Mm -hmm. to do, that I have that time and space to be able to work out those kinks. And Mm -hmm. it often takes place on those weeds. And then I have this like beautiful thing that I can look back on and this sense of accomplishment that I really love at the end of my time there. And I think it also has to do with taking these things that sometimes aren't perfect and making sure that I have them throughout the year. Hmm. And that I think is something that is really hard for how we live today. I think we, you know, we really love these like perfect things. So when you go into the grocery store, we have this perfect, perfect tomatoes and perfect produce. And I want to take all the imperfect tomatoes home and put them in my freezer (laughs) and make sure I have them for the winter. And that I think is something that's definitely a gift that I think my great grandmother and grandmother taught me is just that slow living is making sure we have that we're putting up enough and that we have it always that abundance is always at our fingertips. Yeah. That's what it is for me, I think. That's so lovely. I just had a thought while you were talking about, especially about the weeding. We always say weeds serve a purpose, right? You can look at the weeds and listen to the weeds. What are they trying to tell you? And I think I've felt that too. Another purpose the weeds serve is to help you figure out your problems. Because they're there <laughs> no, for you definitely. to pull up and <laughs> be in one place for a long yep. time. And sometimes they're dinner. It just depends on what they yeah. are, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sometimes like some go in one pile, some go in a different pile. But yeah, I just really, that is like sacred space to me on like Saturday mornings when they definitely, you know, I started out as our farm manager, but now I don't get to do as much of the farming as I used to. Mm-hmm. Now I get to do a lot more finances and human resources and things that mm-hmm. I don't love as much, but are important <laughs> for the organization. Mm-hmm. I have to keep yeah. telling myself that it's important. Yeah. <laughs> this is important work. <laughs> but, you know, that Saturday sacred time where I get to be out in the fields and like say hello to everybody, but also just being in the sunshine and weeding by myself is that's important time for me to be able yeah. to do that decompression. I can relate to that so much. I don't really consider myself a really highly detailed person, but when I'm out there and I'm just trying to pick out things that I don't want there, like I can really like go down and pull out mm-hmm. one blade of grass that's in there or one thing and and it feels so good and it's so much fun. And then like you said, you get to look back and say, wow, that patch really looks just so good because I went in there and I took such care to take out yeah. one thing at a time. Even though, you know, it might seem like a tedious task or, you know, a lot of work or it's hot. I enjoy it. I enjoy mm-hmm. it too. <laughs> so what does the good dirt mean to you? And you can answer that in any way you want. 
It feels like something I would make our teens answer. <laughs> <laughs> you can use it on them. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they would be like, oh, Laurel, why are you so annoying? And they answer these questions like this. Because I always would, you know. At the end of orientation or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I always have them say, like, let's make some puns up. So <laughs> one of them was uh, compost. That's hot. Yeah. <laughs> this is something we asked at an interview. And I like that. And we had our 100th anniversary, and, and not 100th anniversary, 100th episode not long ago. And we did, we played a bunch of the, the different answers. And the, the answers are also different. You know, some of them are very literal. You know, some of them are very metaphorical. So we always just throw it out there and see what people come up with. For us, like compost is, well, you know, compost and the dirt is just where we, where everything starts for us. And so I think more than anything that it's, soils are our foundation and um, foundational for all of our work at Urban Gardens Collective. One of the things that I really loved when I first started is um our now farm director, Malcolm Evans, um, started with us when he was 10. And oh, um, wow. yeah, and so now he's 29. <laughs> so he's been with us forever. Um, but uh, when he started, you know, like I made all of our teens play all these games. Like we would do like get to know games and he'd just say like, Ugh, Laurel, can I just like clean the compost? You know, like I just, <laughs> I was like, I just want to start composting. Do I have to do this? And so he and Darian, who is actually our compost manager now, he started with us when he was 14. He's 35 now. The two of them were just like, look, we don't have time for this. So we're over there. <laughs> and so they actually sat down with a couple of chefs in Chicago and started our compost business. They were both in high school at the time. And they're like, look, we'll do this with Jeremy. Jeremy has a driver's license. We'll go pick up the compost. Will you let us do this? Instead of having to Play do all game. the games with all the other guys. <laughs> and so I was like, sure. So I went with them. We sat down with, with, with these chefs. They started this business, and that's how we started composting in Chicago like 15 years ago. And yeah, and Malcolm and Darian still both work with us almost 20 years later. And I think that that just very much shows like how huge compost is to our operation. It's definitely like the biggest piece of what we do. And it's definitely, I think, probably what the good dirt is to Urban Growers Collective. It's the thing that that makes the world go round for UGC. Oh my gosh. It's also hot. Yeah. <laughs> what a so great hot. story. I love that. <laughs> what a great story that is. Oh I love God. that. And I love that Kamos is so hot. It is so hot. <laughs> it also totally dates dates us because it was, oh, what's that? She's like totally that social light. I'm totally forgetting her name. Like, oh, Paris Hilton. Yeah, it was like we came up with <laughs> she would say it's, it's so hot. And yeah. so I was like, guys, it's, it's like compost, it's hot. And they're like, oh, you are so lame. <laughs> so that was our slogan for the year. That's how old that slogan is. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. I'm going to use it. That's so cool. And I love that those amazing kids. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. And you know what, Laurel, you can give yourself all the credit because if your games weren't so cheesy and boring, <laughs> they would have wanted to play them and not do the compost. Yeah, you motivated. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty Talk awesome. Motivating teens. What's so, great, what's so great, though, is now they play the, those games yeah. with the kids and they're like, these games are pretty great. And I'm like, I told you. They're so fun. 
That's so great. It's awesome. Well, how can people listening support Urban Growers Collective? And what do you want people to know and to take away from this conversation? Or anything else you wanted to share? So you can go visit our website at urbangrowerscollective.org. You can also follow us on social media. We're at Urban Growers Collective at Facebook and on Instagram. We're at You Grow Collective on Twitter. And yeah, we just, we love... Any kind of support folks can give us. You know, we love clearly monetary donations, but we also love volunteers. So if you're in the Chicago area and would love to get your hands dirty, we have volunteer hours every Saturday and um, some recurring volunteer hours during the week. So definitely come out. Malcolm and Leanne and the team would love, love, love for you to come and help me weed <laughs> on Saturdays. I promise I won't ignore you if you come out, <laughs> um, even though I said I might. Um, but we definitely could always use your support because, yeah, we definitely, we have more work than we can ever, ever handle. And, yeah, we just definitely love folks who love to harvest and weed and get their hands dirty. And what would you say to someone listening who is like, this is so cool. I want this to be in my city or maybe it is in my city and I just don't know. Are there resources that you can point them towards or do they just Google urban farm in my city or? Yeah. I mean, I definitely like, I think the urban farming movement has exploded Mm -hmm. and I definitely am pro not recreating the wheel. And so I think that, you know, definitely supporting the folks in their own neighborhood is always huge. And so, yeah, definitely just like Googling urban farming, urban community gardens in your neighborhood. And you can definitely find some folks who probably do similar things to what we do in your area. And like we were talking about earlier with the farm bus and all of that. There might even be one that you yeah, don't know about. Absolutely. And you all do so much. Yeah. You do so much. You do growing and educating and delivering and distributing and community building. And do you guys do any work in policy? We do a little bit of policy work. As a non for profit, we're not able to do like direct policy work, but we're, you know, as individuals, we're part of the Chicago Food Policy Action Council. And yeah, we definitely try to work on policy related actions. We're part of the Food Equity Council as part of the city of Chicago. So I would dare say you're certainly affecting policy through your work. Yeah, we're definitely trying to advocate for definitely more sustainable and equitable policies in Chicago. Wow. Very cool. Very impressive. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, this has been so awesome. So happy to meet you and to know more about your work. I've noticed it from afar, but I had no idea the depths of the root systems. So Thank great. You. Death and breadth of <laughs> yeah. the Urban Growers Collective. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443 459 1950. That's 443 443- Four five nine one nine five zero. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community, and the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at We Are Lady Farmer. That's We Are Lady Farmer, or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on the Good Dirt. Goodbye.